A few days ago, I gave a talk at a conference for professional editors. The topic of the talk was how to edit a book to sell. In that talk, I talked about the question, why do great books often fail to sell while poorly written books fly off the shelves? Have you ever had that question? You're at the bookstore, you pick up a book, you look at it, you read a few pages, and you're like, this is awful. Then you look on the front and it says, New York Times best-selling book. Well, while the focus of that talk was to talk about how to edit books so that they have higher sales, I think that a lot of what I talked about also applies to writing a book so that it sells like crazy. To understand why some books sell like crazy, even though they seemingly don't look like they deserve it. You don't want to be that masterpiece that goes neglected. A book only finds life in the mind of the reader, which means you've got to get readers to buy your book and you've got to get readers to read your book or your book is just dead paper. So why do great books often fail to sell while poorly written books fly off the shelf? And how do you make your book into the kind of book that flies off the shelf? Find out in this episode of Novel Marketing the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstadt, Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a difference with writing worth talking about. So, why write a book to sell at all? Well, I've worked in this industry for over 10 years. I've been a literary agent, a marketing director for a traditional publishing company, but mostly I've been the, quote, marketing guy, Unquote. <laughs> Independent authors and publishers come to me to get the books to sell better. And for many of them, by the time they come to me, it's already too late. Why? Because marketing is not something you sprinkle on at the end of the writing process. Like sugar in a cookie, it needs to be baked in to the cookie itself. Sprinkling sugar on at the end might help make a good cookie better, but it can't make up for a bad recipe. As the old saying goes, good marketing helps a bad book fail faster. By the time many authors come to me, they're already doomed because the book is not ready. This is where the ninth commandment of novel marketing came from. Thou shalt not publish thine first book first. And the reason for this commandment is that the act of writing a book is what makes you finally ready to write a book that people may actually want to read. So what makes a book a good book? And more specifically, what makes a book a good book in the eyes of the reader? Well, that brings us to our question about why good books fail while poorly written books fly off the shelves. And I'd like to offer three answers to that question. So let's get to the first one. The first reason why good books fail to sell is because they have an unclear who. The author doesn't know who the book is for. Now, I'll tell you the wrong way this is typically approached. And if you're traditionally published, you probably had to go through this process. And this wrong way is with the use of demographics. Demographics are broad brushstrokes, and they're used to describe a group of people. It's things like age, race, sex, income, location, religion, that sort of thing. And making things worse is that many authors in their traditional book proposals use ranges. They say something like, I write for women 
who are between the age of 35 and 65 who are stressed out. Congratulations, you just described most women. <laughs> Authors often fill their book proposals with more or less useless demographic information. And it's useless because you can't use it to make editorial decisions about how to write it to resonate better with the reader, and you can't use it to make marketing decisions. It's just too vague. Demographics were developed relatively recently. They're a creature of the 20th century, and they're most useful, or they were most useful, for selling things like soap on TV. Seth Godin often says the TV industrial complex is designed to sell average products to average people. Your book is not an average product, and it's not for the average person. And so the tools, like demographics, that are used to sell average products to average people won't help you sell your book. Your book is not Irish Spring, a soap for generic white people. <laughs> demographics don't work uh, because they're not specific enough. Demographics are kind of like saying, my book is for high school girls. And this is just too broad to be useful. There's a lot of high school girls, and they are very different from each other. They don't wear the same clothes, they don't shop at the same stores, and they don't read the same books. Instead, you need to decide which table in the high school cafeteria you're targeting. Is this book for the nerds, the jocks, the band geeks, the goths? Once you look at your readers in that way, suddenly you start to see them with a little bit more clarity. This is something called psychographics, where you're looking at the psychology of your target reader, which is far more important than the demography of your target reader. We are not doomed to our demographics. Our demographics don't predict very much about our tastes. In fact, I have a whole episode called Why Demographics Are Mostly Useless and Why You Should Use Psychographics Instead. But psychographics are just the first step. Ultimately, they're still not enough when it comes to writing for your reader. This leads us to the second wrong approach that's often used. And this wrong approach I actually used to be an advocate for. <laughs> it is the method of creating a reader persona or a reader avatar. And if you listen to very old episodes of this podcast, you may even hear me recommending creating a reader persona. This is a fictional representative reader. And it's based off of a very common practice in the corporate world of creating a customer avatar. And there are a couple of techniques that work well in corporate marketing. Customer avatars are one. The other one is taglines that don't work well for authors. Taglines don't work well for authors because they don't have millions of dollars to pay for ads to put the tagline in front of people. The reason why Just Do It is such a good tagline for Nike is because they spent a billion dollars shoving that tagline in your face. <laughs> uh, you probably don't know the tagline of any of the authors that you personally read because those authors don't have the money to put that tagline in front of you. And why should they? They should be advertising their books rather than their tagline. But customer avatars, customer personas are kind of the same way. They work in corporate America. They don't work for authors. And I finally realized this after working with authors for many years. And I found that customer personas or avatars are just two terms for the same thing. They break down for two reasons. First, most authors just end up describing themselves in generic terms. So it's not that useful. Or they end up just writing for themselves, which is, again, not useful. 
or they're just too imaginative and their imaginary avatar likes everything they do. This is particularly true for novelists. Having an imaginary friend isn't actually that useful for an author when it comes to making editorial and marketing decisions. Now, there's a phenomenon in marketing where the narrower the focus, the bigger the sales. Many of the best-selling books were written for a specific person. A children's book written for a specific child typically outsells children's books written for average children. In fact, just in the last episode, I interviewed S.D. Smith, who's an independent author of the Green Ember series, and he wrote those books for his own children, and they've gone on to sell a million copies. This is with him being 100% independent, a million copies. I don't think he would have sold nearly as many copies if his books were for average people. There's a technique that you've probably heard me talk about on this podcast called Picking a Timothy. It's a practice inspired from one of the books of the Bible written to a specific person named Timothy. And by writing to the one, Paul wrote to the many. The fact that he had a specific audience for his book helped it be clearer and more resonant and more approachable. In fact, many of the books in the New Testament, like Luke and Acts, are also written to specific people. In fact, you often see their names in the books. And you may think, oh, that's just a religious thing. But no, it's actually a common practice. Many of the literary masterworks throughout history were written to a specific person. Machiavelli wrote The Prince for a specific person. It could go on and on and on. Nowadays, though, it's often just the opposite. Some authors often struggle to name a single real-life person their book is for. This is a red flag that the book will struggle to find readers. So I encourage you to follow Paul's example and write to the one. What is amazing about this is that you can get to know your Timothy in real life. He can become more than a representative of a target demographic. He can become a friend. As an author, every writing decision should go through the filter of will this benefit Timothy? Will this scene make sense to Timothy? Will this hold Timothy's attention? Will this joke make Timothy laugh? The key to word of mouth which is where the magic of marketing comes in, the key to word of mouth is to thrill the one. Now, I know many of you are thinking, but doesn't narrowing the target audience reduce the potential readership? No. In fact, the opposite happens. People want what they can't have. If a group is men only, that makes the women want in. If the ride requires you to be four feet tall to ride, that makes the little kids want to ride more. Harry Potter was written for 12-year-old boys, and that didn't keep you from reading it. Thrill the one to thrill the many. It's only when someone is thrilled by a book that word spreads. And it's only through word spreading, word of mouth, that ultimately a book becomes a bestseller. Every movement starts with a single reader. So, why do good books fail while poorly written books fly off the shelf? Well, the first answer is this. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. A book that is trash for one is treasure for another. A tighter, more exciting edit may make the book worse, depending on the Timothy. You can't do your best work as a writer if you don't know who your book is for. And you can't know what a generic person 
will think about your book because there's no such thing as a generic person. So that's the first reason. That's about the who. Now it's time for the second reason. Bad books sale while good books languish is an unclear why. Now by why, I don't mean why are you writing the book? You probably know why you're writing the book. No, the why I'm talking about is why would a reader read the book? Why would a stranger want to read the book? So why would a reader want to read your book when they could be listening to a podcast or watching a YouTube video or playing a game on their phone? Well, to answer that question, we need to answer a more fundamental question, and that is, why do people read books? Despite the surge of new technologies, books are as popular as ever. In fact, younger people read more books on average than older people. <laughs> the older someone gets, the fewer books a year they tend to read. So why do people read books? Well, we did some research years ago at Author Media to answer this question. We collected a lot of qualitative answers to the question, and then we analyzed those questions. We found that most readers read for one of three reasons. So let's go through those reasons. The first reason people read is for entertainment. This is reading for the adrenaline, reading to feel excited, reading to see how the book ends. I want you to picture this reader laying in bed at three in the morning, still reading the book. They're at work the next day and their coworkers are like, oh my gosh, what happened to you? And they're like, oh, I feel awful. I was up last night until four in the morning. I was reading this book. I couldn't put it down. You've got to totally read the book. The book is amazing. <laughs> they're like a, a drug addict telling you, you got to do the same drugs they're doing. And in some ways, the book is like drugs for them because they're reading for that excitement. Another place you could picture this reader is sitting in front of a TV on their couch, but the TV is turned off and they're choosing to read a book instead. For a book to work with this motivation of a reader, it needs to be more fun than TV and more engaging than games. The craft of writing is the most important for this kind of reader because you're competing with the very best that Hollywood has to offer. So that's entertainment. So now let's talk about the second reason why people read books. They're reading for education. They're reading because they want to feel smart and sophisticated. Or perhaps more specifically, they're reading to get a question answered. I want you to picture this reader sitting in a coffee shop, reading the book in the coffee shop, right? There's only a certain kind of book you take with you to a coffee shop. And the key to success with writing for this kind of reader is to answer the question they are asking right now. Now, if you can do a good enough job at this one thing, it doesn't matter how well written the book is. Don't believe me? I have three words for you. Some assembly required. When you buy a box at the store or a piece of furniture at the store and this phrase is on the box, you know you are going to read something very carefully, regardless of how well written it is. I remember being a kid, my dad bought a computer desk and it came in this shockingly small box. It had 14 steps, each of which had a dozen sub steps for 100 steps. He spent the entire day reading and rereading those instructions. 
Now, that, what he was reading, was not originally written very well, and it wasn't written in English, and it wasn't translated very well. It was perhaps the worst writing he had encountered the entire year, but that didn't cause him to give up on the writing because he had to have the answer to the question, how do I assemble this desk? Now, craft is still important, but in terms of sales, I would want my publishing company hiring an editor who knew how to edit a book to better answer the question rather than an editor who knew how to better get the book to conform to literary norms. Writing for education is all about the education. So a good example of a book doing this well is the book What to Expect When You're Expecting. If you're pregnant for the first time, you're nervous. You don't know what's going to happen to your body as you have a baby growing inside of you. So what do you need? What do you want? You want to know what to expect. And this book puts its finger directly on that point of pain and offers hope and offers encouragement. So we've talked about entertainment and education. Now let's talk about the third reason people read books, and that is they're reading for escape. They're reading to escape their current reality. Are you feeling powerless? Read about a powerful protagonist. Are you feeling poor? Read about someone who is rich. People who are reading for escape are reading to feel something different or even to feel something at all. So people who are struggling with anxiety or depression often turn to escapist literature for relief. Now, this isn't to say that everyone reading for escape is struggling with depression, but people who struggle with depression are more likely to read escape literature. And this gives you a powerful place of influence where your book may be meeting someone in their darkest season, right? It's these kinds of readers who write authors' letters saying, your book saved my life. <laughs> that is really powerful to get that kind of letter. I want you to picture this kind of reader sitting on the beach reading the book. They're reading for vacation, or the book itself is vacation. I remember when I learned this lesson. I was at the beach. I was 14 years old, and I took with me networking for dummies. Not how to win friends and influence people. This wasn't that kind of networking. This was computer networking for dummies. And everybody laughed at me because you don't take an education book with you to the beach. Or at least normal people don't do that. You take an escape book with you to the beach. Now, there's often some confusion when I talk about escape and entertainment with what the difference between these two books is. And I spend a lot of time thinking about this because these are very different motivations, but often escape books will have elements of entertainment and vice versa. And I think if I were to put my finger on the one core distinction between these two motivations, I would say that people reading for entertainment are reading to see how the book ends, whereas people reading for escape are reading the book hoping that it never ends. Right? You know how the book's going to end. You know that the hero is going to defeat the villain. You know that the couple is going to get together and you don't care because it's not really about the ending. It's about the journey. <laughs> and this is why escape readers tend to be so voracious. As soon as they finish one romance, they pick up the next one. As soon as they finish one fantasy story, they want to go on to the next one. The Wheel of Time series, which I recently finished for the second time, <laughs> That is 11,898 pages long, that series. It's over 4.4 million words. The audiobook version was hundreds of hours. Each one of these books is like the length 
of War and Peace, and there's over a dozen of them, right? This is not a book you read because you can't wait to see how it ends. Everybody knew Rand was going to defeat the bad guy and restore order, right? That that was never really in doubt. You suspended your belief in that at times to make it more interesting, but really, I read the Wheel of Time books because I wanted to spend time in that world. Good escape books take readers to a different place. Now, that could be a mythical past and a fantasy, or it could be a distant future. It could even be a simpler time, right? This, uh, Amish books I would put into this escape category. And I think this is actually a good way to illustrate how and why people read books. And if you've ever wondered why are Amish books so popular? Why do they sell millions of dollars worth of copies every year? And it's because of future shock. Now, what is future shock? It's like culture shock, but in your own culture where you haven't changed, but everything around you has changed. Everyone seems different. And that rapid rate of change is so shocking as to become physically painful. You don't even know who you are anymore. You don't know who the people around you are anymore. And the future shock's been around for a long time. The term was coined in the 1970s. But as the pace of change has accelerated, as the pace of cultural change has accelerated, this experience, which normally is associated with the elderly, has been hitting people younger and younger. In fact, the kids have a meme that they use to express future shock. And it's called the jealous girlfriend meme. So there's a guy and he's walking, he's holding hands with a girl, and he's turning over his shoulder and looking at another new girl. And the the jealous girlfriend represents how things were, and the guy typically represents culture, and what he's looking for is how things are. And there's millions of versions of this meme, and it's kind of the shock at change meme. And it's, it's one of my favorite memes, and I'll put some examples of this meme in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at authormedia.com slash 323. And so as long as this feeling of culture shock persists, I predict Amish to be an enduring genre. That's why it's not a fad. And every micro genre has some sort of psychological pain or psychological reason that cause readers to want to read that genre. Another thing people reading for Escape may be reading for is a different emotional feeling. So best-selling romance books from a marketing perspective seem to sell because they make the reader feel wanted by an amazing man. So back when Fabio graced the covers of most romance books back in the 90s, he was on thousands and thousands of romance books. A publisher, Avon Books, did a study to find his impact on the sales of those books. And they found that in the 90s, when Fabio was on the cover with another woman, he would boost sales by as much as 33%. There's a reason why he was on all of the covers, because he was such a powerful magnet for readers. But, and this is what's really interesting, when he appeared on a cover alone, sales went up by 45%, far more than they went up when he was on the cover with another woman. What this tells me is that as a marketer, 90s women weren't buying the romance story. They were buying Fabio. <laughs> so a more modern example, and I think this uh, will hopefully help illustrate what I'm trying to get to a little bit better, is the book Twilight. Twilight Saga is the 20th best-selling series of all time. And now, I imagine many of you have read Twilight. And reading Twilight, you're like, man, this book has a really hollow protagonist. 
Bella's one defining characteristic is that she is clumsy, which isn't particularly unique or special. Most people are clumsy, right? We all compare ourselves to the athletes, and the athletes are just a small percentage of the population, and none of us are as coordinated as they are. Now, Bella is particularly clumsy, but other than that, she's got basically no personality. Now, as a marketer, looking at this book, I see that the success of Twilight is not despite having an underdeveloped protagonist. It was because it had an underdeveloped protagonist. Twilight allowed readers to feel like they were Bella, a beautiful and wanted high school girl. There wasn't enough of Bella's personality to push out the reader's personality, and it made the reader feel wanted, because that's her other defining characteristic, is that pretty much every beautiful man in that whole story wanted her for one thing or another, or in one way or another. That's her big challenge, right, is that she's got all these great guys who want her, and is she going to pick the one, or is she going to pick the other? And this feeling, this desire to feel like a beautiful and wanted high school girl resonated with hundreds of millions of readers. And I think it's what led to the book being the 20th best-selling series of all time. If Stephanie Meyer had gone in and done an edit and given Bella a more specific personality, I don't think that it would have helped the book sell more copies. It may have helped make it a better book, objectively. Maybe it would have won more awards but I don't think it would have helped it sell better. Now, I'm not saying that all romance readers want to feel wanted, and I'm not saying that you should specifically make your book worse in order to get it to sell well. But what I am saying is that you need to know what your readers want, and you need to give it to them if you want them to actually buy and read your book. So of these three motivations, entertainment, education, and escape, what they all have in common is an emotional connection with the reader. And if you want to connect with your reader emotionally, you need to know which emotion specifically you're trying to connect to, right? Because people have different emotions and you can't vaguely connect with vague emotions of generic people. You have to connect with specific emotions in your specific readers because no one sees themselves as a generic person. So make a point to find out who your reader is we've already talked about, and emotionally, what they need before you write your book. So why do good books fail while poorly written books fly off the shelf? Well, the second answer is because the book lacks a clear reason why a stranger should read it. The stronger the why, the better the sales. For books to sell, they need to provide either education, escape, or entertainment. And good is subjective. <laughs> All right, so now let's talk about the third reason why great books fail to sell while poor books fly off the shelf, and that is they have an unclear benefit. Readers will never get back the time they spend reading your book. They will live the rest of their lives and die and still not get back the time they spent reading your book. So reading a book is expensive and it's risky. It's risky because some readers feel guilty about not finishing a book. They see every unfinished book on their shelf as an indictment on their character. These readers don't want to buy a book unless they're confident they're going to finish it. Which, if you've been believing that, if you think that an unfinished book is an indictment on your character, get past that. It's not true. <laughs> but it's a myth that I think well-meaning teachers and well-meaning parents have caused 
us to believe because they're trying to encourage us to read more books back when we were young. But as an author, you have to realize that people are afraid to buy your book because they don't want your book to make them feel guilty that they didn't finish it. So to get a reader to want to buy your book, that reader needs to already know what the benefit is for them in reading your book. There's a classic Calvin and Hobbes where Calvin's sitting behind his lemonade stand, except instead of selling lemonade, he's selling a swift cake in the butt, $1. <laughs> and a lot of authors are like Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. And Hobbes comes up and he says, how's business? And Calvin says, terrible. Hobbes says, that's hard to believe. And Calvin says, I can't understand it. Everybody I know needs what I'm selling. Does that sound like an author that you know, everybody I know needs my book that tells them how they're all doing it wrong and how they should all do it my way. You can present your book as either a vitamin or as a painkiller. And for the sake of your book sales, I hope your book is a painkiller. And remember, fiction can kill pain too. Amish is doing so well in the market because it's killing pain. And boredom is its own pain. Now, it's important to realize, though, that readers only read the best possible book. If all cars cost the same, everyone would drive a Tesla or some other luxury car. And with books, all books more or less cost the same. The most expensive book you can buy is 20 bucks, maybe 25 bucks, while the cheapest book is five bucks. All of those books are affordable. And what this means is that the cost in time to read the book is far higher than the cost of money, which means readers are only going to buy the very best possible book. Now, once they read that book, it's no longer the best book because they just read it, right? Even classics need to rest before they're enjoyable again. And the classics become enjoyable again where the new books are now competing with, do I want to buy this new fantasy book or do I want to read Lord of the Rings? For the fifth time. <laughs> Sometimes that's a really hard call because reading the Lord of the Rings for the fifth time, if it's been a while, still may be more fun than reading the new book. Not that I've read Lord of the Rings five times. <laughs> Books compete for attention. Books compete for attention in the store and they compete for attention on the reader's bookshelf. Readers may keep several books on their bedside table, but often those books are for different moods. They have their entertainment book, they have their education book, they have their escape book. What this means is that for your book to be read, it must be the best possible book for that reader at that moment. Can you see why picking a Timothy is so important? Why writing for a generic reader just won't cut it? <laughs> How can you be the best possible book for a generic reader? I don't know if that's possible, but you can be the best possible book for Timothy right now. Now, by best, it usually only needs to be the best in one of those three categories of escape, entertainment, or education. So let me give you some examples from some specific books. One really good one is The Harbinger. This book spent 80 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. That is a long time to sell. And if you read the book, it's a series of conversations that take place in New York City. So on an entertainment level, I would rank it a 1 out of 10. And on an escape level, it takes place in present-day New York City. So there's no real escape. A little bit of supernatural stuff going on, so I'll maybe give it a 2 out of 10. So why is it selling so well? Well, from an education perspective, the book offers an answer to the question, 
Why would a good God allow September 11th to happen to America? And for some people, that is a really burning question in their heart. And the Harbinger offered, for some of them, a very satisfying answer. An answer so satisfying, they went and told all of their friends to buy the book. So that for 80 weeks, despite any real marketing, and it had some marketing, but it wasn't on the New York Times bestseller list because it had great marketing, or because it spread broadly, right? Many of you listening have probably never heard of this book, <laughs> despite its millions and millions of sales. But the ones who have heard of it have probably read it because of the nature of the word of mouth. Now, most books, instead of scoring a 10 out of 10 in one category and a 0 out of 10 in the other two categories, they score about a 5 in all three. And because they're not the best in any one category, because the reader is unclear, the benefit is unclear, the book never gets any sales. If you want a reader to read your book, it's got to be the best. So let's look at the book Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. If I were to score this on our three metrics, I would give it a 10 out of 10 for Escape. Francine Rivers is one of the best romance writers, especially of the 20th century. And I would give it maybe 3 out of 10 for entertainment. It's got some entertaining elements, but you know how it's going to end. But from an education perspective, it's a 10 out of 10. Why? Why has this romance book had such enduring sales? It's been on the bestseller list for 20 years because it offers a commentary on the book of Hosea, which is in the Bible. Most people have read the Bible, but most people don't remember the book of Hosea. But the people who've read Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers, they do remember the book of Hosea because of this book. And this has led to its enduring popularity. So third book I'd like to bring up as an example is To Kill a Mockingbird. From an entertainment perspective, you have no idea how it's going to end. In fact, you have no idea how each chapter is going to end. There's a lot of suspense. There's a lot of tension in the book. From an escape perspective, it's also a beautiful escape into the world of a very young girl and a young girl who is more and more, as time goes on, separated from us culturally, right? She's living in a very different world. I think the book takes place in the 1930s and the 1940s, maybe 1950s, so middle 20th century, which is a long time away from us. Most of us were not alive during that time, so it provides a really powerful escape. And it has that kind of Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn type feel of like, what was it like to be a child in a different age before cell phones? And so very high escape and... It provides a commentary on racism, which is, you know, our enduring sin as a nation. So I would give it a 10 out of 10 for education as well. And this is why To Kill a Mockingbird has resonated with readers decade after decade. People try to burn the book and people still buy and read the book. They try to kick the book out of libraries. People still read the book. They try to take it out of the schools and people still read the book. They're not reading the book because it's getting burned. They're burning the book because people are reading it. So if you want your book to be an enduring classic, a classic that resonates throughout the generations, you've got to score a 10 out of 10 in entertainment, education, and escape. It's very hard to do this. Very few books are able to pull it off. The key to success here is to make a promise. You make a promise with your marketing. Now, to make a promise, you need to first know who you're making the promise to and what they want. And so a great exercise to help you with writing your next book. If you want your next book to sell like crazy, 
is before you write the book, write the back cover copy first. I do this when I'm creating courses. And when I started doing this for my courses, my sales went up by about a thousand percent because it transformed everything. I now create a course designed to promise something that people actually want. And then I record the sessions of the actual course to deliver on those promises. You can do the same thing in your book. Identify who your book is for and then figure out what the promise is going to be. And then as you write the book, over deliver on that promise. When people get the right promise, they're like, yes, thank you. Finally, a book that's what I'm looking for. This is the best possible book for me. You're crystal clear on what the promise is. And then you over deliver on that promise. This is what causes readers to not shut up about your book, to email all of their friends saying, you've got to read this book. I had several friends email me telling me that I had to drop everything I was doing and go and buy the Harbinger right away. (laughs) That is marketing that is baked into the cookie. That was not marketing that was added on at the end. So I encourage you to create pitches for your book before you write the book, and I want you to tie them to one of those three reasons people read. I have some episodes on pitching and how to put together a good pitch, and it will hit some of these same issues that I'm talking about, but more about how to frame it for a reader's perspective. And I encourage you to listen to those episodes. You can find links to them at authormedia.com slash 323. Or just go to authormedia.com and do a search for the word pitch and you'll find those episodes. A good book is like a box of Cracker Jacks. It provides a tangible benefit and the pitch describes what that benefit is going to be. What is the prize inside your book? So why do good books fail while poorly written books fly off the shelf? Well, the third reason is that the book is not the best possible book the reader can buy. If you want your book to be a book that flies off the shelf, you need to know exactly who the book is for before you start writing the book. You need to know why that person would want to read your book, and then it's got to deliver on that why in the absolute best possible way. You do that, and people will race to buy your book. If you need help writing a better book with the writing and the craft of making the kind of book that people want to read, we have a course to help you. It is the five-year plan to becoming a best-selling author. In this course, you will be reading books on craft and writing short stories and becoming a better writer far faster than you would writing novels. We've had hundreds of authors go through this course and they rave about the results and the quality of their writing. I co-teach this course with Hall of Fame author James L. Rubart, and I really encourage you to check it out. And if you're wanting a discount on this course or any of our other courses, consider becoming a patron. Patrons get really cool discounts on most of our courses. In fact, we have a bunch of new patrons. So I'd like to say thank you to our new April 2022 patrons, John Henry Kearns, Eric Nevins, Meg Mac McDonald, Lenora Teal, Jake Stoddard, Beth Foreman, Laura Shad, Woody Edmondson, Mary Ann Henry, and Tammy Kennington. So thank you so much for becoming a patron of the podcast. Thank you for your financial support. You are what keep this podcast on the air. These episodes are a lot of work to make, and I appreciate you giving me the time to make the episodes. If you 
benefit from the Novel Marketing Podcast. You, you get value from this podcast, but you can't afford to become a patron. Money is tight. I understand. Just take a moment and think if you can think of one person who would find this episode helpful. And then just share this episode with that person. <laughs> you'll be helping him or her, and you'll be helping me. I would really appreciate it. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. Our producer is Lori Christine, and this episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt. The blog post version, which has all those links and some fun photos, you can find at authormedia.com slash 323, and the blog post is crafted by Shauna Lettler. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. saying thank you for listening, and live long and prosper. <laughs>